Hello and welcome to Dare to Know, interviews with quality and reliability thought leaders. I'm Tim Rogers, and today I'm pleased to be joined by Deganta Das. Deganta works for the Center for Advanced Life Cycle Engineering, or CALS, at the University of Maryland. He's an associate editor of the El Sevier Journal of Microelectronics Reliability. His work with the center includes emphasis on the educational aspects as part of the university curriculum and professional development. He's a science fellow of the Merce Academy of the United Kingdom and recipient of the Distinguished Technical Member Award of the SMTA. Deganta, welcome and thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting us. I hope that we'll find some common areas of interest among the community. I'm sure we will. Deganta, the the CALS Center at the University of Maryland School of Engineering is internationally famous for its focus on the physics of failure-based reliability. Can you tell us a little bit about the center and your current research there, and perhaps some of your more noteworthy findings? Of course. uh, Our center started in 1984 uh, as an NSF research center, and we were on NSF funding up to 1991, but unlike uh, many other research centers which are formed over a specific grant and then kind of dissolve itself, we were very fortunate to have industrial partners from then onwards for mm-hmm. us working on reliability of specifically electronics, but over time, uh, much of the um, systems too. But we are most well known about physics of failure-based reliability approach. And just to point it out, we use the term, actually we stole the term from structural engineers, primarily to differentiate ourselves from the purely statistical-based reliability approach that was often used at that period of time. And one of our first uh, major grants that got us started in that direction was we were called upon to help update the Mill Handbook 217 for electronics reliability and also to develop a set of failure model tools for the U.S. Army. So we succeeded in one and we failed in the other. Failed in in rather uh, interesting manner. That is, everybody said that the suggestions you guys have made regarding update or scrapping, for that matter, to the Mill Handbook 217 is very good, but we can't just do it. It will disrupt too many things. Uh So we stayed on, uh, of course, with uh, physics of failure-based reliability because one of the main points that has often been said Oh, we have to use this failure rate and MTBF approach because everything else is too hard. We do not know. We cannot find. So we stayed with picking on from boards to components to systems to connectors hmm. to inter- interconnects that there are governing equations out there. It's not that hard to find them from the hmm. literature and run your own modeling experiments and to come up with reality-based models for most of the failure mechanisms that work in electronics. So that had been our main goal from the beginning, to take the 
magic out of reliability estimate, but make it more specific to things we can measure, things we can uh, control, and by which we can get an equation of time to failure, miles to failure versus certain things. That sounds a lot more practical. Uh, now, one of the points that is often made, actually just the opposite. People would ah. say, it's not practical. Think of the phone you are holding in your hand. There are 3,000 different interconnections there. How can you come up with a time to failure for all of them? And the, where it becomes practical is when you not only develop the equations, but you develop the tools to go with it uh, in terms of, so how do I model all that interconnects into a computer simulation software where I can provide it the necessary inputs for how a solder joint would crack, how a die attached inside an electronic component would fracture, how a connector will corrode, and all of these equations getting built into, we always think of it as software, but I can also think of it as an information system that can be used by somebody to come up with these reliability estimates. And not only that, also point out, if I'm doing it at an early enough stage, what are mm -hmm. the bottlenecks in achieving your reliability goals so that we can update them. But over time, uh, one of the big uh, comment was, well, you cannot have one number for failure. And we fully understand that. And over time, uh, of course, we are able to integrate the works with the estimates on confidence interval on any of these equations yes. that we are coming and coming up with the a better tool for somebody to use. Right. Uh, I guess that's what I meant when I suggested it was more practical because it turns those equations and those theories into something that they're really, that applies to a real-life yes. um, system in the field. You know, Degata, it seems like there's a lot to gain for collaboration between for-profit companies and academic research centers like CALS. In your opinion, what are some of the opportunities and challenges in working with researchers from industries outside the academic world? Okay, I will start a little earlier than even before I get into the point of how does that help or not help. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of the things where you found that we are going, we are doing predictions about uh, reliability or the most common ways something would degrade, and even in the very first test, we are finding things are not working out the way we expected. And not just because of arithmetic or not just because of uh, calculation errors, is because of the supply chain. And we realize that if I get a board plated in company A versus company B, there are variations that are coming. And those are the kind of things, the practical knowledge, mm and which often are coming from the industrial researchers who are going to be often working with academic research centers. Mm -hmm. So let me tell you a couple of very practical things the way an university research center works. Of course, we are always looking to do something different that is has not been done before. But at the same time, we also do not want to 
make up a problem and then solve it just for the sake of solving. So working with uh, the for-profit companies who have to get the products out always helps us to know which problems are worth solving and need solving. Right. Next part is, and there it is becomes really integrated with, if some of us who are working with industry for uh, many years now, uh, we have come to understand how the business system works and what are the time constraints and what things are planned to be solved this year, what things are planned to be worked on over a five-year period. But it also helps us a lot to get our students to know under what kind of business and development cycle constraints they need to work. And other part, again, from the point of view of Our satisfaction is we can get to see the development of what we are doing literally into products, uh, which when you work with the for-profit companies may not be that year, but within some reasonable period of time, we come up with a method of assessing what is a tin whisker? We know that tin whisker became a big issue when he went to lead-free plating. Mm, right. uh, that we come up with a method that this method of plating is going to improve tin whisker um, generation process, or rather make the tin whisker generation process slower. And that's starting to become used. I come up with methods of... Uh, detecting a counterfeit electronic uh, in a very quick manner. Mm -hmm. And then I see it is already being used. If I just worked on by myself, thought it through, wrote it up, uh, it will take a lot longer for the industry to adopt. And when I'm working directly with companies who are getting to this problem all the time, uh, that really helps. Deganta, do you think industries, when you work with people from outside academia, do, do, yes. do you think they have a realistic view of what can be achieved through this partnership? Or I, I, I just wonder if they if they have a, uh, a good understanding of what the capabilities and the limitations are of, of these more theoretical techniques. Yeah. Now, there are, of course, sometimes... Mm, it goes both ways. Mm-hmm. And I can tell, mm-hmm. I'm not going to name names, but I, I can tell you tell you from the some very specific uh, recent uh, examples. Uh, at least in one case, we were working with an uh, European company, or we are still negotiating with them. And it's meant to be something short term. But the process that is laid down in front of us in the, in the table uh, is not really in a way that's conducive to students learning from mm, it because point. of the pace. It's not a good thing or bad thing. Mm-hmm. I'm still going to do the project, but this will that project will be something I am just doing as a researcher and uh, somebody specialist in that topic, along with my other research colleagues. Mm-hmm. But it will not be something I can have a student participate and learn from uh, because of the timeline that is put in there. That's a very good point. I mean, you can't lose sight of the fact that you're still an educational institution. Yes, very much. Because it's not just, you know, I have seen some people kind of in a, a 
negative manner comment that, oh, you are working because you have graduate students who are free or cheap. <laughs> I just never see it that way. I mean, it's, yes, there is a part of it is apprenticeship program. People are, uh, who are graduate students are also in the learning process and finding it, but also it is our duty to make sure that they learn something new from even the small things that they need to do. Of course. So that is one direction. And the other direction is uh, a bit more fascinating uh, in terms of, so we went into a long uh, phone call a couple of days back, actually a day long. Uh, it was like a seminar we are doing for another organization. Mm -hmm. And most of us thought we are going to be discussing detailed material property and grain size level characterization, things of that nature. And we talked about it, but then they very politely pointed out in six months, they need to have uh, 10 different components and they're, mm, whether they're acceptable for a specific products or not. So there is no room to do that level of uh, discussion that you originally did. But these are outliers. Over time, what I'm finding is more and more people who are leading research in the major international companies, both US and in Asia and Europe, uh, all over the place, also come from most of them uh, going through a rigorous academic page, often a PhD program. And so they are getting a more and more understanding there. Uh, it was not very common for people with a um, PhD from a major research institution to go and work for companies earlier. Now it is much more common. Many of our PhD students are going into um, the major consumer and industrial companies and leading their research teams. So over time, both sides are starting to speak each other's language a lot, lot more. Yeah, I think that's great. Deganta, I know you can't probably can't share some of the details, but I wonder if you could give us some idea about some of the collaborations that are currently occurring and, and how you think that that could impact the discipline of reliability in a more global way. Okay. I Actually, in some cases, I can, uh, I'm definitely, I'm happy to share the names of some of our sponsors if it comes up in the conversation. But let me talk about specifically the global way. And here I'm talking with a little bit of an international, just academic hat and not just issue of one country. One of the things that is happening, although much of the particularly government funded research dollars are kind of stagnant hmm. in, in the United States and much of the rest of the Western developed world hmm. due to many of our other constraints, it is actually fairly increasing in some of the other economies, and I would, if I have to name names, I would specifically name China and Korea. Sure. I'm not surprised. And, yeah. Yeah. And also, they are actually uh, being, I would say, more global in their thought process than, than, say, our government research funding agencies. Because in most of the times, uh, forget about like DARPA or who are particularly military, right? even NSF. Yes, you can have a foreign partners, but you cannot have any funds go to the foreign partner. Whereas uh, 
definitely with china and korea and even with some of the elements of european research groups all they allow funding to flow across the ocean to other countries and direct participation from outside mm. so as a result you yes you get some funding of course they come with their own regulations and requirement and we need we need to be uh, flexible enough to be able to adapt to that uh, but more so at least from my experience some of the laboratories we get access to in performing these tests are absolutely tremendous mm-hmm. they from their scope their size their uh, ability to uh, turn around and start doing a new test mm-hmm. so some of the research laboratories in uh, i'm specifically now talking about china and korea are willing to work with us willing to um, write proposals with us willing to get our students to be interns there and send send their employees to work with us for some time uh, these kind of works are really improving the understanding on both sides now of course here i took on my um, international academic hat so one might say so how does that help uh, our programs mm-hmm. if one has to see more parochially just in the united states and i would say it does and the way it does is really people 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 mm-hmm. uh, we have international these internship programs with both mm, it's it has been very broad some of it is that how it grew uh, over time countries from china hong kong uh, lebanon turkey on the other hand of course um, some of the european countries mm-hmm. so uh, particularly the countries which require their students to do internship as part of their engineering program uh, in france and in germany we get them to come to our here all the time they bring in sometimes uh, disparate but sometimes really productive way of doing things and i would say one out of 10 of them not everybody will move on to be doing uh for the reliability research career but many of them are coming back as graduate students as as postdocs as uh, part of an another industrial organization and working and contributing in not only in the US but uh, major US companies and governments oh i so agree with it, you I, i think this benefits the industry as a whole and i think that's yes. absolutely a good thing yeah and probably you have um, in just a little anecdote here as it fits in so right now our main engineering building is called the jong kim engineering building mm-hmm. so professor kim who is actually now a professor we call him professor of practice it's kind of something that um, was almost created for him he was uh, a serial entrepreneur who uh, made significant amount of um, uh, money in the telecom industry and donated a quite a bit here but the recent interesting story was uh, actually when the new president elect got elected in korea she wanted him to be the minister in charge of either defense or industry there it finally did not work out because of uh, his dual citizenship and all that 
but it looks like the shows you the kind of people over time uh, any of these collaborations that are brought in and their contributions. That's a great story. Degata, I'd like to turn away from research a little bit and talk more about the educational um, aspect of your work at University of Maryland. There's a lot of really excellent advanced degree programs at the University of Maryland, but it can be hard for experienced engineers to make time to come back to school. Who, who do you think can benefit the most from these programs? And what would you say to those people who insist that they don't have the time? I will first say to them, I agree. And then say, but you can make it. And some of the ways, and I would like to really thank, and you know Fred, and he is part of that uh, reliability engineering academic program too, uh, Fred Schenkelberg. Yes. But the people who started that program, uh, uh, Professor Ali Mosley and Professor Modaris, they really looked at the, from the point of view of they wanted to create a program where reliability was not taught in too many places, actually probably only in Arizona and in Maryland mm -hmm. as a separate discipline. And they knew that it will be impossible to attract just undergraduate students to come in and do a reliability engineering program where they don't even know what that is. Mm -hmm. And they knew the uh, understood that this is going to be a lot of people at that point, mostly industry and uh, government and military, but over time in industry, who'd like to learn this? And uh, they cannot do it if we make this requirement of they need to give up their job, come and uh, spend two years for a master's or four years for a PhD at an university. Yeah, it seems pretty unrealistic, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. So what they did, actually, they, they could make it um, negotiation with the university authorities, and setting up systems, first all over Maryland and then in other places. Well, literally, at initially at least I know, they were recording uh, video cassettes and shipping them to the offsite students. Good. Uh, so that's, but over time, of course, today we have uh, the same thought process getting into the completely web-based delivery, synchronous and asynchronous learning process. Many years back, I actually helped here, literally putting in a speakerphone in a classroom for students outside the university. Mm -hmm. And now, of course, we don't have to do that. But it's not just the technology. It just, uh, one of the things are uh, making the, and all universities are getting there, but we did there uh, pretty well, and not just reliability and other fields too some of the more relaxed rules and regulations in terms of residential requirements, in terms of people being able to, uh, for particularly for masters, theoretically at least, they do not, no student even have to even ever come to the campus. Wow. Um, to get their degree. Uh, not that I encourage it all the time, it's nice for them to come and uh, spend some time. And for PhD, for people to come only for their qualifiers and proposal defense and the final defense. Right. Uh, but besides that, they are able to do it uh, much from work. Now, other part is also for the companies to starting to understand that it is beneficial for them, particularly their students who are doing a PhD outside, mm. 
let them work on some of the experimentation on a real problem that they are doing and making sure part of that is what I would say of a, such a nature that can be published and used in a thesis. Right. Now, of course, it's not happening in all companies, but in many, many companies, uh, they are understanding that they can do it and they are um, students, the tools that they are learning, they are being able to use in their uh, products immediately. And uh, also they are not having to learn, uh, run to the university to run the experiments mm. and being able to run there. And I have seen it happening uh, with our students doing this work in automotive industry, in uh, circuit board manufacturing mm. industry, mm in uh, test equipment manufacturing industry. We always have, right now I was just, before I got on, I was looking through our list. Uh, we have exactly the same number of students enrolled in our research group now who are working at industry and who are on campus. Wow, that's impressive. It's half and half. That's and, impressive. Uh, I, I, I want to just clarify one thing. Uh, it wouldn't be half and half when they started. It was more like two third and one third. Mm -hmm. But some of our students toward the end, actually, their employers cannot wait. So they join job and finishing up as they are away. But even if I don't count them, it's about 30% 30, 30 of the students are at industry. You know, that brings brings me to another question. I, that kind of it. That kind of life experience in the classroom has got to be extremely valuable, not just um, for for the other students, but for you as well. How, I, I, when, when, when I went back to school, I felt that I learned as much from my fellow students as I did from mm -hmm. the professor at the front of the classroom. How do you incorporate the life lessons or the, the life experiences of the returning students um, in your classroom? Sure. Sometimes it happens without us even knowing. And let me start with that. See, in a, a graduate program, so you often think of students who are doing research, but there are also, particularly being in the Washington DC area in our university, we always have, uh, and I do not even know for the, or other faculty members do not know when you walk into the first day in class, there are people in the class um, who may have several, many years of uh, working with uh, particularly government and military and government research labs who are in the classroom. And some of them, the way they interact and give the examples are really, really beneficial for everybody uh, in terms of what, uh, what the problems they face, how problems get solved. When it turns out that, um, in, at least in some of the cases, we get to have the same people later on come back and uh, give lectures and interact with the students. Uh, also, when we put together the projects for a class, mm -hmm. for a graduate class, we uh, try to make it the, that the group includes somebody from the industry in the same class mm, in that group. That tremendously helps the students in few ways. One, uh, some of them are rather mundane. Uh, working in a group, putting a project um, planning together and uh, achieving right. that, uh, it, it really works in a different way when somebody is uh, 
in a government logistics job for seven right. years and brings that in. But then I want to say something a little uh, negative too. Negative in the sense, there are some cases where people are coming in to learn about how to do the things they're already doing better and faster. Right. There's nothing wrong in it, but they're not really ready to pick up something new. That is one of the cases. It's, it's based on individuals and the kind of um, organizational culture and background they're coming from. Right. If somebody comes in today, uh, talking one of our those favorite topics in reliability that you always have to calculate a mean time between failure for all your products. And all I want to learn uh, is how to do that faster mm -hmm. and not willing to look into the steps that, well, that's not the right metric. I need to find figure out a different metric and use it. So that can be one way where uh, the life experience of returning to students may not help everybody else. Right. But in most cases, uh, from not just from the knowledge, but from the discipline and the problem solving and group dynamics, uh, it helps prepare the rest of the students better for, that makes sense. for the industry. That makes sense. You know, I, I want to come back to returning students again, to God, that there are a lot of different programs that a reliability engineer might consider. What's the advantage of enrolling in an advanced degree program versus some other kinds of training programs? You know, although it is, of course, one of our things is to bring people in and uh, toward their degree, I will not just answer it that it is always of advantage. Mm -hmm. It, of course, depends on uh, what your goals are. Uh, so we, uh, we meaning here at, the, at Maryland and in Cal Center, and also I, I'm, I have seen it in many other universities too, offer something of the nature of what you call advanced special students where they can enroll and take a few classes, uh, specifically pick and choose. Right. Uh, one advantage of enrolling in an advanced degree and uh, is getting people to concentrate on getting one problem from beginning to end and solving it and writing research papers mm writing the, um, for preparing for the conference, preparing for a rather brutal uh, review process, <laughs> both internally and externally, that does help. Because uh, we often find uh, people outside the university to be very polite, mm. and which we are not. <laughs> when, we, <laughs> when we criticize somebody, it can be it can feel rather personal. <laughs> uh, but the going from beginning to end uh, on a master's thesis program or a uh, PhD program, one of the benefit is uh, getting to the habit of writing critically, right. writing for an audience, speaking, uh, writing to an audience of specialists and writing to an audience of informed non-specialists, depending on whether you are going to a um, conference of a strong academic nature or business nature, mm -hmm. those are really something that um, 
helps people to put their thoughts and disciplines together. Uh, so because, um, of course, I'm, when I'm working at a company or for a company, I have to hop from project to project sure. as it comes along. And here, staying with one problem for a longer period of time, uh, seeing it through, uh, that provides the kind of discipline that that helps. That's a real luxury. And as I yeah. mentioned, that uh, many universities are making it easier, making, uh, although it's not encouraged, but they allow a relatively longer period of enrollment um, it's really for all, but expected that the people who are working will take advantage of that more. So, Deonta, do you see a situation where a professional development class of uh, a shorter duration might be an alternative to more extensive in-class training? In some cases, yes, but I I wouldn't call it just as an alternative. Mm-hmm. Uh, because sometimes you want people to take those trainings just because new things have come up. And some of the specific things I want to uh, mention are, uh, there are trainings which are often provided by developers of tools and softwares and equipment. Mm. Yes, sometimes they are advertisement for their product. And which I can't begrudge, but some of them actually do provide fairly good amount of um, <coughs> fundamental background training mm-hmm. in the process. Uh, I, I'm not going to name names, but some of the reliability software manufacturers, some are just giving lunchtime lectures on their product, right. but some are doing week-long background knowledge and when they actually bring in not just their people, but people from who are independent professionals or from universities to talk, uh, and then solve the problem right there, those are helpful. Uh, even uh, although our primary focus is on the degree programs, all of us do professional development courses, either as part of the conferences or meetings we organize, or. Uh, at conferences and meetings organized by others. Mm -hmm. In case of, uh, particularly in the field of reliability, we all know RAMS does offer several um, professional development courses that go with it. Uh, IMAPS and SMTA, these are, IMAPS and SMTA are uh, two other research uh, professional societies, which are, I would say, less academic and more industrial but they also provide some of the professional development courses that can be very, very beneficial. Degata, this has been great. Thanks so much for joining us today and sharing your insights. You're welcome. And I hope that when you are looking for education and training opportunity for yourself or your children, give us a look. Of course. (laughs) We are right near Washington. Actually, we are inside the beltway. I know that's not a good term, <laughs> uh, but uh, that that brings in with it a lot of ability to interact with uh, directly from people in NSF and DARPA and Department of Energy. Uh, other places you have to make a plan and go make a trip. We, you can, being here, being part of here, be uh, work with them very, very closely. That's a great opportunity. Um, and we are not not just the football and basketball programs. <laughs>
That was Deganta Das from the University of Maryland's Center for Advanced Life Cycle Engineering. For more information about CALS at the University of Maryland, go to www.calce.umd.edu. This is Tim Rogers. Thanks for listening.